0: We are broadcasting live from the Women for Climate Conference at Columbia University, Low Library, at the City of New York. And uh, we are also expecting a press conference scheduled by Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen following the conclusion of a two-day FOMC meeting at which it is widely expected. The Federal Reserve will raise interest rates, 25 basis points. Here to tell us more, Narayana Kochelakota, a Bloomberg View columnist, also happens to just be the former president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. Uh, Narayana Kochelakota, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I want you to just begin maybe by describing what is it like to sit at the table uh, at these meetings and maybe you can tell us if you've ever been to any of them on a virtual basis, like by a video, because that's the sort of essence of, of one of your columns that I want to bring up.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Tim. Um, no, I, uh, The regular meetings are held in Washington. Um, we we uh, all sit around a large, uh, uh, one of the biggest tables you ever seen in your life, and uh, try to hash through the policy and economic issues at the time to, to, get, to, to get to a good decision. Um, you, people are usually reading prepared remarks that they've uh, put together with the help of their staff. Um, and, uh, but I think that's, that that is Is there a
0: specific comp- order?
2: It's uh, that or, The order is usually the chair goes last in the two different go-rounds that we have. So there's a econ- discussion of the economy where the chair will go last, and then the chair typically goes last in the discussion of what's going to be done with policy. But other than that, it's pretty flexible – uh, people will go in different orders depending on where they want to be and uh, it's the secretary of the committee will will hash that it out it's uh, nothing really uh, predetermined there on the yeah. video conferences uh, um, those are held on a more ad hoc basis um, sometimes on, for emergencies that come up during the course of the between the uh, in the regular scheduled meetings but sometimes just because the committee wants to do a, a deeper dive into to, to questions before coming together and uh, I always found those very useful when I was on the committee. Um, it, the thing is, you can't get everyone to Washington on a on an ad hoc basis. But so then you'll you'll end up doing things by by video conference.
1: You know, uh, Nariana, I was noticing that you wrote to us ahead of this that you were be against the Fed raising rates by a quarter of a percentage point uh, today. Why?
2: Yeah, so I have a uh, – uh, thanks for the question. It's, uh, I think I have a, you know, a couple of reasons where I, I'd be pretty cautious about raising rates at this time. So one is that I, I continue to think there's uh, more slack in labor markets than, uh, than I think most uh, members of the FOMC do. Um, and the reason I say that is we continue to see very strong employment growth. Um, most economists think that over the longer run, employment growth has to settle down at something in the low hundreds per month. Hundred thousand per month, uh, as opposed to um, the the um, the numbers we've been seeing, which are, are, are really closer to two hundred. And so, given that we've seen that kind of fast employment growth without seeing uh, high inflationary pressures or wage pressures, that's really a strong signal that we have still a lot of slack left in labor markets. and the And the committee should be really uh, doing what it can to to facilitate the, the that. That taking up of that slack by the economy.
1: Well, but Narayana, aren't you a little bit concerned about the incredible enthusiasm that we've seen in stock markets and in junk bond markets and uh, other areas that, you know, frankly have stemmed from this low rate environment? I mean, isn't it the Fed's responsibility to try to uh, inject some discipline into markets that may not otherwise be there?
2: I don't see that. I never saw that as the Fed's Fed's job. It's not the the job that's mandated by Congress. Uh, The job is To promote max employment and promote price stability, there are concerns on the financial side. um, The Dodd Frank introduced a a number of changes in the regulatory system. The Fed has responsibility those through the Board of Governors. Uh, If 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 the Fed is worried about financial institutions taking on too much uh, risk, they have a number of tools at their disposal through through uh, their regulatory function, where they can can start to start to bring uh, pressure to bear on those institutions. It's not monetary policy is just way too blunt and, uh, frankly, just too ineffective uh, a tool to be used in that kind of, kind, of, kind of disciplining device.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the process of selecting new presidents of the Board of Governors as well as those that sit on the committee? Because I believe uh, we're going to get a new president in the Atlanta Fed. But then the president uh, also uh, has some appointments that could reshape the Federal Reserve.
2: Right, we just uh, anou- got announced this week that um, there was a new president for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, replacing retiring uh, Dennis Lockhart.
1: Right. Uh,
2: Raphael Bostic is going to be uh, replace Dennis, um, and that appointment process is that the board of directors and a uh, subset of the board of directors, those who are not bankers, uh, in, in Atlanta, um, uh, na- uh, name uh, appoint Mr. Bostic, subject to the approval of uh, the Board of Governors in in Washington, and. Uh, uh, I think I think it's notable that uh, you know uh, Mr. bostick is I think brings a great range of experiences both in the public sector and in academia, um, and he is the first uh, African American to be a uh, president of a, of a reserve bank in the history of the Federal Reserve. So I think a, a lot of uh, good things uh, coming from this, from right. this appointment. Nariana, uh, I want to yeah. oh, go ahead. I was just going to quickly say about on the governor the governor appointments I think of as being um, potentially much more consequential. Because the governors in Washington always vote on every FOMC decision, and they have this larger regulatory function I alluded to earlier. Um, Governor Trullo Dan Trullo has announced he's going to uh, step away from the Board of Governors in early April. That means there's going to be three openings for uh, for uh, President Trump to, to fill, um, probably in short order. And so that could give him a lot of – it gives him the opportunity to have a lot of influence over, over the Board of Governors.
1: So, uh, Nariana, just to push a bit back a little bit about uh, your idea that it would be a mistake for the Fed to hike per, a quarter percentage point, I mean, isn't the, the, the market sort of um, acceptance of this, pricing it in without a big disruption, uh, basically a, a tacit under, uh, acknowledgement that it's the right thing to do?
2: Oh, I, you know, I, markets are uh, sometimes overly enthusiastic about, about economic events and sometimes they're not as enthusiastic as you would like. You don't make monetary policy based on what the stock market's doing. I think you make monetary policy based on how uh, you see the economy uh, evolving. Um, And I I continue to see that there is the opportunity for strong growth in America without having uh, inflationary pressures. And the the Fed should be doing what it can, I think, to facilitate that. Um, That's uh, that's its job, is to promote maximum employment uh, as long as that doesn't prove a danger to price stability.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Nariana Kotralakota, Bloomberg View columnist, professor of economics at the University of Rochester, and of course, former Minneapolis Fed president. We're uh, broadcasting live from the Women for Climate Conference at Columbia University in New York City, and I am honored to bring in Muriel Muriel Bowser. She is the mayor of the District of Columbia, and she joins us now uh, on the phone. Uh, Muriel, I'm so happy to speak with you in particular because Washington, D.C., is the first U.S. city to establish a green bank and only the second in the world. What is a green bank?
3: Uh, Well, actually, we're working to get it established. This is a piece of legislation that I am going to introduce uh, to my council uh, in the upcoming weeks. And uh, as you mentioned, we'll be the first city, uh, U.S. city, to do it. And it will be a tool, as we see it, to create green jobs. Uh, We're going to expand solar power. It'll help us lower energy costs for the government uh, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, It would also help us increase uh, our Uh, investments in clean energy for for the district so this is a financing tool uh, that will allow us to more quickly uh, get money out into green infrastructure in our city
0: Mayor Bowser, uh, you're the seventh elected mayor of the district. Uh, You took office in January of 2015. I wonder if you could speak to the role of affordable housing and its relationship to our conference, Women for Climate, and the effects of climate change.
3: Well, we recognize, and I was with Mayor Hidalgo in Mexico City recently when C40 met, uh, and we so appreciate her global leadership. And what she has put a focus on is the disproportionate impact on on of climate change on women around the world uh, as, as it relates uh, to housing and drought and all other types of issues, women of color, women uh, who live in poverty. Poverty uh, are bearing the brunt of drastic changes uh, in our climate. In our city, uh, we have focused and we have been a a leader in sustainability. And we recognize that mayors uh, play a critical role. Uh, When many times, not just in our in our nation, but in others, uh, there can be uncertainty at the federal level. But mayors have the obligation and the ability uh, to make quick infrastructure decisions and procurement decisions that collectively, if you put all the big city mayors together and the small ones, too, uh, will have the type of American policy that fights climate change.
1: Well, Mayor Bowser, you know, you raise a good question, which is, you know, even if maybe perhaps we hear a lot about uh, the federal government rolling back some of the uh, environmentally uh, protective regulations that uh, President, former President Obama put in place, and we hear a lot about how the EPA is kind of uh, perhaps going to have a curtailed budget, you're implying that basically it won't matter if the mayors of big cities are able to implement their own uh, sort of climate change friendly or or sort of uh, environmentally friendly programs. But is that true? I mean, is there some kind of effect from the fact that the federal government is cutting uh, the money that they devote to reducing greenhouse gases?
3: Yeah, I wouldn't say uh ooh, ooh yikes. I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter. Um because we do for uh, for example in our city uh, we we get money from the EPA that funds a lot lots of grants in our department Um, but we do have the ability to make up the difference Um, so it's not sustainable uh, to to think that cities won't ever need some federal support Uh, but we are able to drive innovation and best practices uh, that inform um, the commitments that the federal government is able to make we are preparing right now to stand in the breach, uh, to to make sure that cuts in in federal grants to our our department, for example, are made up.
0: Uh, Mayor Mayor Bowser, uh, municipalities tend to have their own culture and their own dynamic uh, in a variety of uh, areas, whether that's culture or in politics. And I'm wondering if you could describe the special situation that uh, you're in as uh, the mayor of the district. Uh, with the federal government right there. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that relationship and how you believe, maybe you do, that uh, uh, it can be improved and changed to help the people of the district.
3: Uh, Well, we are proud of our our status as the nation's capital and host to many federal government agencies, the White House and the Capitol included. Uh, We are a little different in the federal uh, structure in that we operate as a a city, a county, and a state all at once. Um, So there are many uh, functions, for example, that I have that other mayors don't have because we we function as a state uh, in in many regards. Uh, I, for example, uh, had a meeting just the other day with the president, where we focused on the federal workforce and in their inclement weather policies. So there's just some kind of practical things like that uh, that, uh, that define our relationship with the federal government, uh, special events, um, people coming to the nation's capital uh, to exercise their First Amendment rights or other ways um, that, we, that we work with the federal government.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Muriel Bowser, Mayor Bowser, uh, the District of Columbia, and she can be followed on Twitter. Thank you, thank you for at,
3: covering this special event.
0: Thank you, uh, at Mayor Bowser. we're going to learn this afternoon, of course, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. We'll be covering it on Bloomberg.com. The the, uh, press conference following uh, the rate decision uh, is reportedly to be one of the most important signals of uh, what the Federal Reserve's timeline will be for when they will raise rates yet again, if I guess the world has not fallen to
1: well, let's let, let's get a sense of what Mark Stefanski is thinking. He's chairman and CEO of Third Federal Savings and Loan Bank in Cleveland. Uh, Mark, what are you hoping the Federal Reserve will do today?
4: Well, there's a, it's a double-edged sword because if they do raise the race, that that will help all the banks because the interest uh, the spreads will be better um, for the consumer. It's not so great, but if you think about things. Uh, in terms of uh, what's happened in the past, you know, I grew up in an era where interest rates at uh, 7, 8, 9% for a mortgage were pretty good. And so. Um, we just moved over
0: 4%. We just yeah. moved over 4% for 30 mor- uh, year fixed rate mortgages.
4: Exactly. Which still is pretty good if you compare that over uh, the history of the last 50, 60 years, even. So it's well, still a good deal for the consumer.
1: But Mark, how concerned are you that the economy is not ready for it and that a, uh, not the rate hike, I mean 25 basis points, we're talking a quarter of a percentage point that's probably priced into the market pretty fully uh, throughout the curve, Uh, but what about, you know, sort of what they might suggest afterwards? What are you hoping they indicate as far as their pace of rate hikes this year and what that could do to risk assets?
4: Well, I'm very concerned uh, of a a fast-moving rate hike. I I don't think the world economy can handle something like that. I think the world economy is very, very fragile. And if it wasn't, then we would have seen uh, significant moves uh, years ago. But um, I I still think that we have a fragile economy. I think there's a lot of momentum with the current administration in Washington. I think the uh, optimism is there. I think the consumer confidence is uh, in a good place. But we have to show that we're making gains on the job circuit, and uh, the economy really is growing.
0: Mark, I wonder if you could give people a little background about Third Federal Savings and Loan in your career, and also maybe just give us an example of one of your customers, and perhaps that would illustrate how things have changed.
4: Sure. Um, Well, my parents started Third Federal back in 1938 in the midst of the Depression. I'm a second-generation CEO, chairman of the board, and I've been at this job for the last 30-plus years. Um, We uh, do business in 20 Six states right now, and we're the largest mortgage lender in Ohio. We have stores in Ohio and in Florida. Um, Where, what are typical uh, customers thinking right now? I I think two things are happening. One, with the rate hikes uh, that have occurred, I think uh, the consumers in general are concerned that rates are going to jump and jump too high and price them out of the market for a mortgage. So you see a lot of people jumping in, but for the first time, and I. think about 10 years, we're looking at uh, seasonality. And what I mean by that is uh, traditionally this time of the year, especially in Ohio, you see a lot of people coming to the table buying homes. And we haven't seen that in the last 10 years. It has not been cyclical until this year. This is the first right. year since 2007, seven, eight, something like that, that we've actually seen. What do you uh, think accounts for that? What does that mean? What well, does that mean? What to, does it account I think it's two things. I think uh, the first thing is is that the consumer confidence is is uh, is back. Um, how long that will last, it's it's you know it's it's up in the air, depending on the the policies I think and the, the administrative things that come out of Washington. And regulatory relief is one of them, um, and I think um, people are very optimistic, so they're willing to take that risk. Well, and, you uh, know.
1: Mark, I, wonder, I want to break in there because there was some data um, that was highlight, highlighted by David Schauel, money manager, uh, that growth in loans and leases at commercial banks has pretty much come to a stop. It's kind of flatlined uh, in the past few months. And I thought this was compelling because it flies in the face of the narrative that we've heard about how animal spirits are returning. How do you interpret this data?
4: Well, I, I can't speak to commercial real estate, but I can tell you that in residential commercial loans estate- and leases. Right. The commercial. I can't speak to commercial loans and leases because we just specialize in home lending. That's all we do. Uh, we make more home loans and like I said, anyone in Ohio, and that's all we do. We don't do credit cards and we don't do commercial lending. But the consumer, the person on the street who's buying a house, is more confident today than they've been in the last 10 years. And just to show that, um, last, uh, last week uh, our, our applications were up. 30 uh, percent over last year at this time and that's, that's the first amazing. time we've ever it's yeah it's the first time we ever had a jump and then pre-approvals which is people anticipating they're going to get into the, the housing market anticipating they're going to buy a house they're up uh, about 40 percent from last year so again the seasonality is back which is normal and uh, the consumer confidence seems to be there at least in the housing sector
0: Well, thanks very much, uh, Mark Stefanski. Uh, Great, uh, great insight there. Chief executive, uh, second generation banker, third federal savings and loan uh, in Ohio. Women for Climate Conference. We are here at the Women for Climate Conference at Columbia University in the city of New York. And I'm very glad to be here. Lisa Abramowitz. When, when I think of L'Oreal, I confess, I think cosmetics. I think lipstick. I think uh, women's beauty. It's not that far of a stretch. That's, okay. It is well, it, yes. a cosmetic company. But uh, I don't necessarily think about sustainability and climate change. But here is, uh, we're going to introduce someone who's going to disabuse me of my ignorance. Alexandra Palt is the chief sustainability officer of L'Oreal. And she has uh, graciously come in and jetted here from uh, Paris via Poland, via Toronto to finally arrive this morning here with us. Thank you very much for being here.
5: Good morning. Thank you very much that's, for uh, having that's me. A
0: long, that's a long trip to make and, and yeah. uh, so uh, what message do you bring uh, that you've been doing this, you said 20 years? I can't believe that, but that's another story. Uh, but you've been doing this… It's a cosmetic this- company. Yeah. <laughs> They're
1: probably good creams, you know. <laughs>
0: Anyway, go on. Sorry. Uh, Tell us what message you bring about L'Oréal sustainability and what people can take away that they may not know.
5: Yes, um, at L'Oréal, women gender equality is one of our core commitments, of course, and that for many years. More than 60% of our brands are led by women, almost half of our board is female. Uh, So we are really committed to gender equality and that for a very long time. And we are also committed to fighting climate change. This is a core orientation of our company and that has resulted in already a 67% reduction of carbon emissions. Around the world, Uh, we had a goal, a target of minus 60% in 2020, and we reached minus 67% in 2016. Well, what were some of the sources, the biggest sources of uh, greenhouse gas emissions at L'Oreal? Well, uh, that's at the consumer level, actually. When you look at the life cycle of a product, it's when you use hot water, Uh, during a shower to wash uh, your hair, that's the biggest source of carbon emission. But in our value chain that we can directly um, control, it's through the sourcing of raw materials, packaging, um, it is uh, suppliers, its production and distribution. And so we have worked on all our value chain.
1: So how much more expensive is it to be uh, sustainability-minded and and sort of to go to uh, fair trade types of suppliers and other types of measures that you've taken?
5: Well, um, actually we think uh, that it's not more expensive and we have uh, demonstrated that uh, decoupling uh, carbon emissions from growth is completely possible. Because we, during the time where we have reduced by. 67%, also our production grew by almost 30%, 29% exactly. So we showed that you can decouple growth from your carbon emission, production increase from carbon emissions. And of course, when you work on your carbon emissions, the first source of what you're doing is working on energy efficiency. When you work on energy efficiency, you are saving money. That's very clear. And so one third of our um, uh, savings in carbon emissions came from energy savings. So, and then there is another point. We think we really are convinced that um, without this commitment to sustainability, we are not going to be a performing company in the 21st century. And L'Oreal is around for more than 100 years and we want to be around for another, quite a while of time. And so we have to adapt to this changing world because otherwise we are not going to be successful.
0: The combination of brands that fall under L'Oreal, uh, if we were to line them up, they go everywhere from professional brands to consumer brands, uh, Luxury. I think uh, Luxury, Giorgio Armani, uh, you name it, uh, Maybelline, everything. Uh, Quite a uh, Right. Now, as far as the packaging goes, mm-hmm. that is such an integral part of the relationship that exactly. the customer has with the product. Uh, Has the popularity and the emergence of a climate-aware customer made it easier for you to rethink the packaging, to lower the amount of waste, to get rid of things that are not essential to the product, but maybe for a previous time were okay, but the needs to change, needs to be updated?
5: Well, this is a very complicated question, because what you ask is basically, is the consumer willing um, to... To, to, to change with cha- Change with us. And um, the, que- the answer is, is, is it's, it's, comple- it's complex. Some consumers are. It's not the new normal yet. It's not the new normal yet. And basically what we see in studies around the world is that consumers very often say we are very interested in sustainability. We want a brand that is committed but when they go to the shops, um, they don't think about sustainability in the moment that they have the pleasure of buying a beauty product. So what we are trying to do is to make more and more sustainable products that consumers still want to buy. So we are not um, making compromise on performance and desirability. And very often it's possible. So. Bigger is not always more beautiful. That's uh, already that. And now we have introduced, for example, we're starting to introduce a lot of recycled material in our packaging, which doesn't change the outside um, uh, vision. And then our consumers, more and more coming up, that are completely into this new model of a sustainable lifestyle that the new good life is going to be a sustainable life. And I think they will become more and more and more. And L'Oréal is going to be prepared to uh, respond to that market.
1: You know, I find it interesting, especially given the new U.S. administration stance and some of the uh, environmental rules uh, that we've had in place and some of the agreements. Uh, And I do think it's interesting that in corporate America, it seems like, I mean, you've been working on this for, for more than two decades, you know, what's the next front for corporate sustainability from your point of view, especially given what's going on and the sort of backlash on a political level uh, that we're starting to see?
5: Uh, well, I see also a lot of encouragement uh, around the world, You know, because I think uh, what is uh, clear is um, we cannot go back on that path. Um, it seems quite too dangerous for the majority of people around the world. Uh, and I think for corporate and for everybody, what is now at stake is scale. Impact and scale. So, um, we have to make this the new normal altogether. And so that means consumers, citizens, corporations, sc- uh, local governments, and also national governments if possible. But this um, is really something that you can slow down, but you will not be able to stop it. Also, because people think nowadays, when you look into um, consumer studies that are working with people who show a little bit of way, uh, uh, that uh, The good life, what people understand by the good life, is a more sustainable lifestyle. So people do not feel, they are not going to feel attracted by the uh, frenetic uh, um, uh, use of natural resources without respect. Uh, They feel guilty about it. They don't feel comfortable. And this is going to come more and more and more. So the sense of history won't be able to stop it. There are just some people who might slow it down.
0: It's a fascinating topic. Thank you very much for being with us. Yeah,
1: we really appreciate it. Alexandra Palt, Chief Sustainability Officer at L'Oreal, based in Paris, but trekked all the way here to New York City. Thank you so much. We really appreciate uh, your time.